Welcome to the Rock Christian Church Podcast. Today's message is A Church of Pillars by Pastor Sean Wood. Lord, you are a good God. As we open your word, may you expand our knowledge of you, our revelation of your glory, Lord God, as we open your word. Father, we are well aware that your power is in no way disconnected from your word. So as we open your word, Lord, we ask that you would work powerfully in our lives. In the name of your Son. Amen. Uh, If you've got your Bibles with you, uh, we will be working our way through the book of Revelation. If you'd like to meet me in Revelation chapter 3, we are up to uh, church number 6 of seven letters to the churches in the book of Revelation. Everything that comes after this really just confirms a lot of stuff that we've already been talking about anyway. But today we're going to be looking at the church at Philadelphia, and I'm really excited. I actually believe in many, many ways that this is a word to us as individuals and also to us as a church, and I'll expand more about that in a moment. But uh, I've grown an appreciation for an 1800s preacher by the name of Henry Ward Beecher. Does, Does anybody know the name Henry Ward Beecher? A great preacher, preached about the 1840s, 1850s. But when he was in seminary, there's a, a story of when he was in seminary, he uh, was, uh, the teacher asked the entire class a question. And Henry Ward Beecher stood up immediately and he gave the answer to the question. And the, the minute he finished answering the question, the teacher yelled back at him, no, that's wrong, he said, shut up and sit down. Wow, seminary was different in those days. So welcome to church. And so uh, Henry was a little bit confused because he was sure he had the right answer, but he sits down and, and again, the teacher asks exactly the same question and somebody on the other side of the room stands up and gives exactly the same answer as Henry Ward Beecher. And the teacher says, no, you're wrong, sit down and shut up. Uh, So he sits down and he's quiet and then again, the teacher asks the question and Henry stands to his feet and answers the question again, word for word, exactly the same answer. And the teacher yells at him, says, no, you're wrong, sit down and shut up. And Henry turns around and says, no, I'm right, you sit down and shut up. And the teacher said, finally, somebody taking a stand for what is right. And I believe that is a message to us as individuals. I believe that is a message to the church today. We have many voices today that are telling the church to sit down and shut up and be quiet. And for far too long and all too often, the church has sat down, shut up and be quiet. It's time for the church to say, no, we are going to stand. I want to introduce you to a church today that stood. I want to introduce you to a church of pillars today that stood. This is why I love the church at Philadelphia. We've worked our way through the church at Ephesus and other places, really, really prominent, influential churches. But here's something. Uh, The church at Ephesus was, uh, it knew ministry from some of the greats, the Apostle John, Paul, Timothy, uh, Titus, all of those ministered very heavily at Ephesus. Ephesus was a large church. Uh, We know it had pretty prominent numbers. Uh, it, it, It sent a lot of missionaries out. What a great church. Did a great job. But by the time we get to 200 AD, no church in Ephesus. Philadelphia was a very small city. Philadelphia was a very small church. 
Philadelphia was known for its enormous physical instability. It suffered many earthquakes. In fact, in 17 AD, uh, the city of Philadelphia suffered such a catastrophic earthquake, it killed most of the people that lived there. They did rebuild. Rome allowed them five years tax-free to be able to rebuild the city, but many people settled in the outskirts of the city. But this little city that only had a very small church, we will learn, had an enormous impact. And in, this church was still standing in the 1200s when the Ottoman Empire came in and wiped out all the Christians. The church at Ephesus, 200 years. The church at Philadelphia, over 1,200 years. And I've named the church at Philadelphia the Church of Pillars because, as we will see, it was full of people who stood tall, stood strong and stood bold for the kingdom of God. Uh, What warms my heart as we look at the Church of Philadelphia is this speaks very loudly to our day. I believe the church universally, I believe the church across the landscape of the body of Christ, I think we need a whole new definition of success. I think we've allowed our definition of success to look like you are a successful church when you are in the hundreds or the thousands. You are, you are a successful pastor as long as you can put bums on seats. You, you, have, you have reached some kind of nirvana when the church is kind of uh, sprawling acreages. You might have your own school and all those sorts of things. But at the end of the day, what we see biblically is that Jesus was not concerned with any of those things. In fact, that is not the definition of success that Jesus holds. And whatever our definition of success is, is really important. Why? Because it begins to gear and orientate everything we do. When our definition of success is bums on seats and let's get as many people into a building as we can, when that's our definition of success, it drives what we do during the week. It drives what we do here on a Sunday. It drives the kind of messages that come from behind the pulpit. It drives everything. But when our definition is we want to make an impact and an influence for the kingdom of God in our community, then it changes everything. I need you to know today that I was not called here to gather a crowd. That's not my calling. What I've learned biblically is crowds can be enormously fickle. There was a crowd that was singing Hosanna in the highest on Palm Sunday and by Friday they were all yelling crucify him. And I believe that, uh, here's some statistics you may not be aware of, but over 98% of churches across the globe will never be over 200 people. There are churches that are pastored, uh, which number 50, 60, 70 people, that are pastored by awesome pastors. They grab hold of the Word of God every Sunday. We're going to touch on that before we go too much further. What does it look like to be an influential church? What does it look like to have an impact that is long-lasting. The, uh, for, for those that read the pastor's comments this morning, there is a reality. Do you know the greatest moves of God, the most substantial revivals and movements of God never happened overnight? In fact, the ones that seem to happen instantaneously and overnight fizzle out just as quickly as they come, but the most lasting transformational revivals and awakenings happen over a long, sustained period of time when people look back after 50 years, 60 years, 70 years, and they're wow, look what God has done. 
We live in an immediate culture. We want immediate results, but that's not biblical. The church at Philadelphia uh, warms my heart because we are going to see today, I've been wanting to get to Philadelphia, because Philadelphia is a small church that God did a great work through. And I believe that that is a message to us today, that uh, numbers are not what is important, but how available we make ourselves to him. For those that have got their Bibles, let's begin at verse 7. It says, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David. Uh, Just index that, we're going to come back to that in a moment. The words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and nobody will shut, and who shuts and nobody opens. We're going to talk about open doors in a moment, but, but what on earth is Jesus talking about when he's saying this key of David? What does Jesus mean by this when he declares that he is the one that has the key of David? For those that have read maybe the book of Isaiah, you will read in Isaiah 22 about a man by the name of Eliakim. This is a really good story because Eliakim is a type or a shadow of Christ. Now, Eliakim is a servant or he is a steward in the king's household. The king then was Hezekiah. Good king. If you look at Israel's history, he was one of the better ones. But Eliakim was a steward in the house of the king and he was given the key of David. You will read about this key of David. But what that was, was he was given, Eliakim was given the authority so that whoever he led into the king's house had full access inside the king's house. But whoever he denied access to had no access to the king's house. What Jesus is saying is, I'm the one that's got that authority now. I'm the one that opens doors and nobody else can shut them. I am the one who shuts doors and nobody else can kick them open. Jesus opens doors. You can bring your religion and your self-righteousness all you like, but Jesus is the one that opens the door. You can't kick any doors in. Here's something really important, though. We need to know this before we get to Laodicea as well. The fact of the matter is Jesus is not writing to those who are non-believers. Jesus is writing to believers. This is not you can come into salvation. That's part of it. That's not all of it. I'm the one that has the authority to grant you access, says Jesus. Verse 8 I know your works. Here's what I love about Philadelphia as we work our way down. Every church we've looked at so far, Jesus says, I know your works, list them off, and then there's a big but. There's no but for Philadelphia. No but. If, if you're looking at the whole lot of these seven churches and you're saying, uh, uh, which one would I like to be like? It's Philadelphia. When Jesus doesn't have a but. I know your works, says Jesus. Behold, I have set before you an open door. Oh, they're beautiful words. Jesus says, I've set before you an open door which nobody else is able to shut. That's going to be enormously important because these guys have been shut out. These guys are living in a very small city. Uh, It's a very small body of believers there, and they've been shut out of the Jewish community. And we today think... Whatever, you know, you get kicked out of church today, you walk down the road, you, you wipe the dust off your feet, you walk down the road, you go to the next church. You get kicked out of church today, you come down the road, come to the rock... And we'll give you a seat at the front with Terry. But it was a little bit different for these guys in the first century. It actually affected the whole of their life. 
you see, being excluded from the synagogue meant you were excluded not just from church, but the whole community. You couldn't, you couldn't buy, you couldn't sell, you couldn't trade. Friends and family would disown you because they didn't want anything to do with you because if they associated with you, they'd get kicked out as well. These guys have been shut out. These guys have had the doors shut in their face. And Jesus says, no one's going to shut the door that I'm going to open for you. Religion always shuts the door on access to God. Just as We'll unpack that a little bit more as we work our way through. But what does Jesus mean here by an open door? And what does this open door mean for Philadelphia? And possibly what does it mean for us? I believe this church right now, I believe the church globally, is standing before an open door. Because when you unpack this, uh, the, all of the commentators are divided down two roads. Uh, many will say that it was an open door for them, like a like him, to have greater access to the king, greater access to God, a fuller and a deeper relationship with God. And others would say that the open door means that there was an opportunity for them to be able to expand and do more work for the kingdom and expand their witness and evangelism and missionary efforts. And so which one is it? It's yes and yes. It's actually both. And the evidence we see from the church at Philadelphia is that's exactly what it was. There was an open door before the believers at Philadelphia that they could walk into a greater and deeper relationship with God, but also there was an open door for evangelism and a greater witness for Christ. Whenever the Bible speaks about open doors, it's speaking about both an invitation and an opportunity. And I believe we stand at a possible opportunity right now. I believe God has opened a door for the church. I believe... COVID is a tool in the hand of God, we're going to expand on this a little bit more, is a tool at the hand of God. You, do, you could not believe how open people are to spiritual conversations right now. When we're talking about pillars, it's interesting what COVID has done across the landscape of church. Not just here, but church, I'm talking to pastors uh, saying exactly the same thing. They're saying, you know what, it's interesting because it's, it's like the church has been shaken and everybody we thought was a great pillar and really spiritual and had a great faith in God, they've all crumbled and fallen away. And those we thought would crumble and fall away, they've grabbed hold of God and their faith has expanded. COVID is doing a really wonderful work amongst the church. God knows how to take what is evil, whatever it looks like, and turn it for something good. Here's just a few references. Where do you you get some of this stuff from, Pastor Sean? Well, Acts 14.27, Paul says that there was an open door of faith for the Gentiles. We see in 1 Corinthians 16 verse 9 uh, that uh, Paul was saying that there was a wo- there was a door open, a wide door open for effective work. In, in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 verse 12, Paul says that an open door for the gospel and the word had been opened, but he didn't walk through it because he was waiting for Titus. And, and Colossians 4 verse 3, uh, Jesus, uh, Paul is saying to the Colossians, uh, pray for us. What prayer would you like us to pray for you, Paul? that a door for the word may be opened, he says. Speaks about an opportunity for mission work. But we're not here for a holy dance club here on Sundays. Bill can dance. Terry can dance. Harold gets his dance on as well. But this isn't a holy shake me dance club here on Sundays. God desires to deeply impart something to us so that it may go out. 
Mount of Transfiguration. Three men are on the mountain. Glorious moment when the veil drops and they see Jesus in all his glory. What's the very next thing that happens? There's a boy convulsing at the bottom of the mountain. What God works in, he does so that it may flow out. There is a world waiting. There is a community waiting. And I believe there's an open door for this church. I believe there is an open door for the church across the landscape of Australia and across the globe. Why? Because God has created an open door. God has used COVID to open people's hearts. The question comes then, who would like to be a church like Philadelphia? I've decided that I would like to be a church like Philadelphia. I'd like to be a pillar. We're going to get to that in a moment because, you know, Jesus at the end says, to those who conquer, I will make you a pillar in the temple of my God. Jesus will say at the end of this letter to Philadelphia, I'm going to write my name on you. What do you you write your name on? I've got my name on all my fishing gear because I've got three boys, right? You, you, You write your name on something because one, it belongs to you and two, it's valuable to you. You tell everybody else to get their hands off. Boys, if you're listening... They know that my fishing gear is anointed, so they try to use my fishing gear because it's got them. (laughs) I have set before you an open door which no one else is able to shut. Praise the living God. I know that you have but little power. And this is what I love because the only time the word power in the Bible is used in this context is in this verse. And the context is I know that you have little power. And the word power there is resources that comes by numbers. So what Jesus is saying is, you know what? I know you guys have a small amount of resources due to the amount of people you have in the church. I know that you don't have the resources that Ephesus does. I know you don't have the budget that Pergamos does. I know you don't have all the the decadence that we're going to see that Laodicea has. I know you may not have that, but you know what? Jesus is saying, you don't need it. Because we've got him. Praise God. Jesus says, I know you have little power, I know you have little resources, yet, despite what it is that you have, uh, here we're going to unpack what it was. I believe three things today that you can take away with you, uh, three things. The last two are reasonably uncomfortable, but the first one we've probably covered before, but three things that form a pillar in the house of God and will mean that we as a body of believers have a greater impact in our community. Jesus says, I know that you have but little power, and yet, first one, you have kept my word. You have kept my word. And the word keep or kept there speaks about attending to carefully and diligently. Uh, I kind of, mixing in pastoral and leadership circles, I sometimes make myself the black sheep because the reality is, If you stand behind a pulpit, there is a way that you should treat this thing here. And I make no apologies for that when I'm in conversations with other people. When I'm in conversation with someone and they say, you know, the Bible says, let the weak say I am strong, let the poor say I am rich. The Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says, let the weak say I am strong. It doesn't say anything about letting the poor say I am rich. But we need to keep a very tight, diligent reign on the word of God. You know, when you get to Ephesus, Ephesus was a great church, had great influence. But after the epistle to Ephesus, we know they suffered two enormous splits. 
And there was division that crept into the church, all because they started to get loose with the word of God. They started to allow these liberal kind of teachings to come in and it started to fracture them. Groups started to form inside of the church. Some held to this, some held to that. You know what? If you come up to me and say, Pastor, this is what I believe. Praise God. Awesome. Open your Bible and show me where it is. They kept his word. But keeping God's word is more than what happens behind a pulpit. It was a part of their everyday life. Keeping God's word looks like what you do with your mornings. Maybe you need to get out of bed earlier, maybe, whatever it is. But you need to open and get yourself in the word of God. I am endeared for the first pastor I had, Salvation Army pastor, and he said the, the number one thing you need to focus on is reading the word and praying. And I said to him, you know, I said, you know, some mornings I don't feel like it. He says, I don't care what you feel like. I never didn't ask you what you felt like. I said, he said, the best thing you can do is start your morning by opening the Bible and praying. And it doesn't have to be 15 hours. Maybe just 15 minutes. But here's the important one. Here's the big difference between religion. Uh, religion says a lot, but doesn't do a lot. Uh, here's how to know you're a Pharisee. Pharisees like to pump themselves up. Pharisees can wear all the right clothes. They can say all the right things. Do you know to be a Pharisee, you used to have a thing on your head called a phylactery. We'll get to that later in the book of Revelation, by the way. But the bigger the phylactery, convenient positioning, I know, but, but the bigger the phylactery, the more scripture you have committed to memory. Some Pharisees could recite the first five books of the Bible word for word. But then you have a look at their life and it had no tangible impact on their life. Uh, I, I remember reading a book uh, by the late now, Christopher Hitchens. I'm not, not sure if anybody knows of Christopher Hitchens. Christopher Hitchens was, uh, in recent times, one of the most staunchest atheists on the planet. Uh, one of his very good friends, Larry Taunton, a man that debated him many times, would write a biography on Christopher Hitchens called The Faith of Christopher Hitchens. Here's something really enormously interesting that I found about Christopher Hitchens. Uh, Christopher Hitchens was waiting for Christians to prove him wrong. Interesting. He says, I've debated many Christians. He says, I've met many Christians. He says, I'm still waiting for them to prove me wrong. Interesting. However, in his dying years, can he... He ended up with lung cancer from smoking. But uh, in his late years, because he couldn't travel by air, he still kept his appointments debating people across the United States and Larry Taunton drove him. And there was an agreement. Larry said, I'll drive you, but we're going we're gonna to work our way through the Gospel of John like we always said we were. Larry says, you know what? He knew more about the Gospel of John than I did. But it had no effect in his life. None whatsoever. Keeping God's word looks like something in our lives. These guys kept the word of God because they lived the word of God. You know, John would write in his, apostle, in his epistle, he would write, you know, let us not just love in word, but in deed and in truth. And James would say, you show me your faith without works. James says, the bishop of Jerusalem amongst all the Jews, he says, you show me your faith without works, I'll show you my faith by my works. What's he saying? I'll show, you, I'll show you that I have a conviction inside of me about Jesus being the Messiah according to the life that I live. Keeping God's word, here's, here's a good test uh, for anybody. If you're in court today 
and you were charged with being a Christian, is there enough evidence to convict you? It gets a little bit more uncomfortable as we work our way through. Jesus says, uh, and yet you have kept my word and you have not denied my name. And to deny there means to disown or desert for fear of persecution. This is a really interesting part here. Uh, and I want to use the analogy of uh, 12 pillars we may know. Here's something amazing about Jesus. This is what I find amazing. Jesus came to build a church. The foundation of, of the church is Jesus. There's no mistake about that. Jesus says, upon this rock you will build my church, the rock of the revelation of who Jesus Christ is. So Jesus is the foundation. But as he is setting the pillars for the temple, as he's deciding who is it that I'm going to have as the founding pillars of my temple, he goes and finds some rough and ready cussing fishermen, some tax collectors. He doesn't go to the temple. He doesn't go to the religious folk. And he builds his church and forms these guys into pillars. But it's a process that is somewhat uncomfortable. I remember back in Tasmania, I started up my own lawn mowing business. And in the early times, I didn't have a whole lot of work. And one of the guys I did a little bit of work for, a guy by the name of Toby, he had a habit of buying houses that were wrecks. And then he'd do them up and then he'd sell them on. Kind of bit him in the end, I think, but... One of the houses was this huge house uh, on High Street in Launceston. If you're in Tasmania, if you're from the mother country, the Holy Land, uh, Tasmania, uh, then you'll know, you'll know about High Street. But they're old houses, huge high ceilings, beautiful houses, uh, great big open plan houses. And I can remember him saying, you know what, I really need a labourer. And I remember going in there going, okay, yeah, I've got a bit of time on my hands I can do with the work. And, and he says, this is what I'm going to do with the house. And he shows me this blueprint. And I go, yeah, this is awesome. I can see what I said. This blueprint here doesn't look like anything here. And he was going to completely and utterly renovate this house. Do you know what the first step was? Nothing that was about construction at all. He says, no, 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 no. He says, I need you to pull the walls down. Take the old kitchen out. Pull the chimney down. Yeah, we did that because it's illegal. Uh, yes, that one was... Uh, don't put that on the tape. It, by the way, in... Ta- <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. I th- yeah, that's right. And, um, heritage listed houses, by the way. You're not allowed to knock the chimneys down. Uh, you don't have to worry about it in Queensland. There's not too many chimneys. But uh, what I found was, but before we could reach the intended goal, there had to be a period of deconstruction. We all want God to work powerfully through our lives. We pray those prayers, don't we? They're dangerous prayers, friends. Oh, Holy Spirit, fill me. That's a dangerous prayer, that. We, we pray, Holy Spirit, fill us, without realising that the first part he has to do is empty us. Those prayers should come with some caution tape around them. I want to talk to you about a man that knows exactly what I'm talking about today, and he is found in the Gospels, a man by the name of Peter. There's going to be people in this room that are going to identify with what I'm about to say right now, but... The scripture tells us that, well, I can remember a preacher saying, you should find somebody in scripture that you identify with. And if there's somebody in scripture that I identify with, it's Peter. Scripture tells us about Peter that he was a a ramshackle kind of guy. I mean, he didn't get foot in mouth disease. He managed to get both in at the same time. 
He, he, was, he was a true Tasmanian through and through. He's a guy that would hear the words from Jesus. Uh, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, because flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. <laughs> Very next conversation, get thee behind me, Satan. What? What? But, you know, Jesus has decided, like that blueprint, Peter didn't see the blueprint, but Jesus had a blueprint for Peter to look like, you're going to be a pillar in my church. But before I can build, I need to deconstruct. It looks a little bit like this. Chapter 22 of Luke, verse 31, Jesus says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded. Word's not beautifully translated there in the ASV. The word ESV, the word demanded there means to make a request or ask. The word demanded there means that Satan requests Peter to be completely removed out of God's hands and placed totally in his power. I want you to take some heart from that verse today because Satan needs to get permission before he can get to you. Simon, Simon, said Jesus, behold, Satan has demanded to have you, that he might sift you, underline that word, that he might sift you like wheat. Verse 32, we're going to unpack what sieving looks like in a moment. Jesus goes on and says, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Isn't it interesting what Jesus prays? You see, when Jesus says, Satan has demanded to have you, that he may sift you, that word sift there means to shake or to sieve. Some people are going to identify with this in a moment. To shake or to sieve by inward agitation to try one's faith to the verge of overthrow. And Jesus prayed for Peter. What did he pray? Peter would have heard that and gone, whoa. And Jesus says, but I've prayed for you, Peter. Oh, thank goodness. Jesus is going to pray and I'm going to go around this and this is not going to happen to me. This is a really uncomfortable conversation because I want to tell you today, if you want to have an influence and an impact out there, then God's got to do something really mighty in here. You see, that house on High Street underwent enormous amounts of deconstruction underwent enormous amounts of construction, but you would not believe the value that increased. Work out your salvation, Paul said to the Philippians, with fear and trembling. What happened to Peter, we know. What what is Jesus talking about here? Uh, Jesus is talking about the fact that Peter will deny him three times. You see, right up until this point, Peter thinks he's got it all together. Sound like anybody in this room this morning? Peter's got it all together. No, 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 Jesus, I love you. I I would never deny you. I will never depart. I don't care if they kill me, Lord. I'll go to death with you. No, you won't, Peter. In fact, before the rooster crows today, you're going to deny you even know me. You're not going to do it once. You're not going to do it as a side of mouth kind of thing. You're going to swear and curse at one of the ladies. With swearing, it says. But imagine being Peter. And the rooster crowed. People say the turning point in Peter's life was Acts chapter 2. No, no, no. No, 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 no. The most prominent moment in Peter's life is right now. 
Because when that rooster crows, it says, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Peter knew, I'm not all that. I haven't got it all together. I can't do it on my own. I am completely and utterly broken. Last week, we had the blessing and the privilege of having uh, Michael share with us about the five loaves and the two fish. But the beautiful part of that story is we have five loaves and two fish, and that's all we have until what? Until you put it in the hands of Jesus and he breaks it. Then look what happens to the bread. I used to play AFL. If you put a football in my hand, you know what that's worth? 30 bucks. You put a football in the hand of Gary Ablett Jr., you know what it's worth? About half a mil a year. I reckon golf ruins a great walk. You put a golf club in my hand, it's worth about 60 bucks. You put a golf club in the hands of Tiger Woods, it's worth millions. And I don't care what anybody in this room thinks they're worth this morning. You put your hands in, you put your life in the hands of God, multiplication. But there's a process of breaking. These guys were broken. These guys were kicked out of the Jewish community. These guys were ostracised, isolated. Family wouldn't talk to them. They paid an enormous price. There are people in this room that know exactly what sifting sounds like. Sifting can come by... Uh, it can come when you're at work. Sifting can come through uh, illnesses. Sickness can come through financial hardships. Sickness can come through family, trauma, relationship struggles, that kind of inward agitation where God reduces us down. It's like you're being shaken. COVID's doing this right now, right across the church. And what we're going to find is, will you pass through the sieve? You see, what God wants to do is shake off everything except for the gold nugget of faith that remains. What Peter found when that rooster crowed was, all I have is Jesus. All I bring to the altar is an empty cup. But I have prayed, I love these words, I have prayed that your faith may not fail. Listen to the comment from Jesus. Jesus already knew. And when, not if, when you have turned again, there's something you need to do, Peter. You need to go and strengthen the rest of your brothers. Because they think the same thing. They think they're indestructible. They think they've got it all together. But I'm about to break the lot of you. And as we know, that's exactly what happens. And you can read, if you want to know what reconstruction looks like for Peter, you can read John chapter 21, but that's a, that's a series of a lot of messages. Jesus says, you guys have kept my word. You guys have not denied my name. Listen to these words, verse 9. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say, they say a lot, synagogue of Satan is really just the Jews that say they're Israel. Listen to this. They say that they are the Jews, but they're not. They lie. They say that they have a relationship with me. They say they know the way to, to me. They know that they say that they're the ones in covenant relationship with me. He says, but they lie. Behold, he says, I will make them come and bow down before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you. They will learn that my love is on you. They will learn that a relationship with me is by grace through faith. Verse 10, because you have kept my word about patient 
endurance. I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world. You can read that verse. You can come to many conclusions, but here's what the whole world means. The Greek word there is the same word that is used that Paul uses in Romans and that Luke the historian uses in Luke chapter 2 to describe the Roman Empire. I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. Those who dwell on the earth is a reference throughout the book of Revelation. We will see more and more. Those who dwell on the earth is a reference to those who don't know God. Moving on to the last point. This is, I believe, is the message of the book of Revelation. And this, I believe, is the message to us today. Something enormously, enormously profound has shifted in the church, I believe. Jesus says in verse 11, I am coming soon. If there's one thing that we know from the last 18 months, if there is one phrase we have heard far too many times, it's the phrase called state of emergency. How many people have heard that in the last 18 months? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it's been abused, I know. State of emergency powers that allow us... Interesting, though, uh, forgetting all of the recent context of what that looks like, isn't it interesting how we apply a state of emergency? I, I want to digress for a moment because I have conversations with people a lot that say, you know what, we should get the church should get back to like it was in the book of Acts. Well, that's difficult in one respect because the culture is enormously different. But when I unpack that comment, I find that people have this kind of a per- perception of what that looks like. You know, they all just soaked for hours in the presence of God, all got goosebumps, hair standing up. God moved in power in the first church. Have no fear about that. But we've just looked at six of the churches that could be included in part of that. Uh, go and read the book of Corinthians and tell, see if you draw a whole lot of encouragement out of that book. Uh, can I tell you that the churches in the first century knew exactly the same issues, challenges, and, and everything that we face right now? The letter to the Corinthians highlights a church that didn't swing from the rafters. They used to pitch their tent up there. These guys had gotten so loose that one of the guys in the church was sleeping with his stepmom and it was acceptable by the body of Christ. The good news is by the time you get to 2 Corinthians, they'd ironed a lot of this out. Nothing has changed. But although they face uh, all the same challenges we do, so it's not like, uh, well, you know, they all had the power of God and everything was great. What's the profound difference? They lived in the first church, although they faced the same challenges we do, although they kind of had the same hardships in some respects, they lived in a state of emergency. You see, what I found with a state of emergency is normal goes out the window and we embrace radical. Once upon a time, it was normal to get on a plane and go wherever you wanted, whenever you wanted. State of emergency says you can't do that. State of emergency says you don't go to work. A whole lot of millennials went... <laughs> but these guys live in a state of emergency. Here's what a state of emergency does. It, it, it elevates the urgent. You see, right now, they would say that a state of emergency means that we need to elevate the urgent, and the urgent is everybody's health, and whatever we have to do to maintain that. 
Well, you know, the first church lived in a state of emergency where the urgency was we need to take the message of the resurrected Son of God to a dying world and we will do whatever we have to do to get it there. You read phrases in the book of Acts like they all brought their goods and their money and stuff so it could be distributed to the poor. These guys didn't have the odd prayer meeting. These guys met every day. A church for them on a Sunday wasn't an hour and a half. Church for these guys started somewhere around sunup and finished somewhere around the time the sun went down. Now, I believe it's time for the church to return to a state of emergency. And the little church, with little resources grabbed hold of the power of God and had an enormous impact in Asia Minor. I'm going to ask Karen if she can come and play. We're going to finish up. You know, let's read the end of this letter because there's a lot here that's really, really encouraging. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have. There's the message. If all of your end-time theology sounds like that verse, you've got it. If your end-time theology is, Jesus is coming soon, I need to hold fast to what it is that I have so that no one may seize my crown, Jesus says. Verse 12, the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar. I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. Nobody will take you out of my presence. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God and the new Jerusalem which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. Verse 13. He who has an ear today, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I believe we live before an open door right now. I believe there is an invitation and an opportunity, an invitation for every single one of us to walk into a deeper and fuller relationship with God and also a door is open an opportunity is open for us that God would work through us and impact this community in a powerful way it's going to cost us something the reality is if you want to be full of the Holy Spirit it's going to cost you something If we want to make an impact, a lasting impact, if we want God to work through us and extend his kingdom through us and open doors for us, then we need to be willing to pay the price. Maybe there's people in this room that feel like that piece of bread in God's hands right now. Or maybe you're sitting here going, you know what, I've lived far too long in, in comfort zone. I need to get my life into a state of emergency. I need to, I need to reprioritize some things in my life. I need to I need to grab hold of God radically. Just as we sit right now, take the opportunity. prayer this morning. We'd love to pray with you before you go home. But I just wonder if for 
just a couple of minutes, can we sit peacefully in his presence? And then I'll finish in prayer. Father, as we sit in your presence this morning, Father, we've played church for too long. You're not here to play church, Father. I pray that you would, by the power of the Holy Spirit, enable us to keep your word. Your word and your power are not separate, Lord. Let us keep your word. Let us live your word. Lord, I pray that in the breaking, Lord, that there may be a multiplication to feed the multitudes, Lord God. I pray, Lord, that you would instill in each one of our hearts a, a, a state of emergency, a sense of urgency, Lord God, where, where, where you would reprioritize everything in our lives. And I pray, Father, that each and every one of us would see that door that is open before us. No one in this world can shut that door. No one in this world can tell us to sit down and shut up. It's time for us to stand. (laughs) Father, I pray that we would work out what you work in. Holy Spirit, we need you. We invite you into every day of our lives. As we sit here this morning, we may be small in resources, Lord, but I pray that you would use us to have a great impact. In the wonderful name of Jesus, we pray. Thanks for listening to the Rock Christian Church Podcast. To be notified when the next episode is available, subscribe on our website at therock.org.au. You can also connect with us on Facebook at The Rock Christian Church. We hope you have been blessed today and we look forward to you joining us for our next episode.